From the Lucha Podcast Network, this is the Mass Startup Podcast. The Mass Startup Podcast profiles the most talented creators, impactful entrepreneurs, and high-performing professionals with the purpose to drive insights, learnings, and tactics to help you build the things that you believe in. The name's Nzako. I consider myself a, a serial entrepreneur, and that's just an identity I've held ever since I was young. Mm. Got some interesting stories there to share around that early stage of the journey. But yeah, I guess a little bit about me. I studied engineering. So I did a, a discipline of engineering called mechatronics. What's that? It's like a multidisciplinary like, degree that has a combination of electrical, mechanical, and computer. I've never heard of this. Yeah. That's crazy. In fact, a lot of, that was always my thing in varsity was that like a lot of the people that are, are my mates have never heard of it. Okay. And I just feel like it's like one of those best kept secrets that I wish more people knew about, particularly black people. So naturally, I didn't have many black people in my in my classes. Yeah. There were some, but not as much as I think they should be. But yeah, it's just a multidisciplinary kind of program that helps you to prepare for like automation, mm. the future world of work, you know. And I guess I've known that I was going to do that kind of thing for the longest time mm. because the very first thing I've ever wanted to become was an inventor. Yeah. And do you I remember just, what was like the trigger that gave you that 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 inclination to go, oh man, I could try and build things? Yeah, yeah, I actually do very vividly. So in our community growing up, we were the first house to have DS, DSTV in our community. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what made my dad like such a visionary in that mm. way. But first, I think we're the second house to have a TV, first to have DSTV. Mm. So from a very early age, I had like run-ins with technology. And I, I was just so fascinated by these moving pictures in the screen. Mm. You know, the power it had to kind of captivate a family, but also... In the same way, because we were the first ones to have it, a lot of other people would come and watch TV at our house. So just also its ability to kind of connect people captivated me. Mm. And I think I owe it to my dad. Like for some reason, he has always been a visionary like that. Like Telegame Station, when it came out, we got that, you know. Yo, man, people yeah. don't know about Telegame Station. People don't know, bro. People are out here <laughs> on PS5s. People don't know about the Telegame Station. People don't station. know, man. People don't know. So... Yeah, like my dad was always like, you know, I, I, I kind of want to expose these guys. And my mom was the same way. Yeah. Where like, I remember when the first sort of more accessible computers, there were like Windows, you had the tower, the screen, yeah. and the keyboard and whatever. She got me that. And like, I remember that Dope. just being such a weird experience of like, wow, you could yeah. do stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I started like, pirating people's music you know that's that's how that's why people use yeah. computers yeah. yeah like they use that so much like it was just like you know what just yo man i've got a cd can you write exactly this CD? exactly so another cd i was like at the time you have no concept of <laughs> hey this is illegal this is like wrong hey you're stealing someone's work mm. no it's just like no multiple people want the same cd yeah. but one, only one of them can actually buy it. Exactly. So why wouldn't we try it? Exactly. Like, and that's where you see the democratization. Like, mm. the, the just like, oh, wow. What tech can do is yeah. just make resources and like accessible. anything accessible to anyone and yeah. like spread it much faster than yeah. traditional means of media. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really what excites me about technology. It's not so much like technology in itself. Like, I'm not that guy who was like, let me just build something cool. Like, or like I don't know there's some weird stuff guys in my class used to do all that kind of weird random mm. like super experimental stuff but for me it was always to the extent that it solves a problem for real people or the fact that or, or to the extent that it actually is able to connect people who might not have 
originally been connected. Mm. So yeah, that's 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 kind of like how I merge. That's that's my running with technology is that like it has to be able to solve real problems and not just be used for just cool stuff. Obviously, there are people who do that and that's dope. They must mm. continue to like move that research and that you know stuff forward to the cutting edge. But yeah, I'm I'm more drawn to like how can we use this thing to make impact. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the first thing that you ever tried to build? Ah, oh, that's a good that's a good question. Let me think. I used to watch Myth Mythbusters a lot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Remember that show where the guys would try and like bust certain myths? <laughs> yeah. And it was like a very like experimental kind of like like they had like this like warehouse where they would do certain mm. So I'd often try and like recreate some of the stuff they were doing. The one time I built a radio with Oh wow. Yeah, with my with my my uncle. Mm. It's so interesting. I don't even know how he learned how to do that stuff. Like, didn't have formal education in it, but he helped me build our first radio. So that was probably the very first thing that we built. And then probably the second invention that I ever made was this device that you could like wear. It was like a wearable tech before wearable tech. Yeah. And it was designed to help miners who work underground in very hot conditions to stay cool. Mm. So it was like a, a portable solar powered fan. That mm. would like cool your face while you're underground. Was, I mean, solar power underground. Man, don't ask me about it. This is this is this is like young me. <laughs> yeah, I guess my mind was like, okay, it's hot, therefore maybe there's light, whatever. But I mean, you could use the same device for like construction workers yeah. working on like a bridge or something like that, right? Where it's extremely hot, you're, you're exposed to the sun, and you just need something to cool you down to help you be more productive. So, built that, entered it into like a science expo. Did reasonably well and stuff. So, you know, mm. my confidence was growing as a as a mini inventor. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then I discovered that there's this thing called mechatronics, right? Like, whoa, okay, that sounds like all the different things that I needed. Because I always knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know it was actually like a thing. Like, there was no degree called inventions. Mm. So, when I discovered mechatronics, I was like, ah, that's the thing that's going to help. And that's kind of how I got into that. So, did you sort of use, you know, that sort of experience to... And exposure, right? So mm. exposure from your dad, yeah. but also just like the the learning and education from, you know, this amazing course. Yeah. How do you take those things and start to go into like a career where you want to work in, say, for example, startups? Sure, sure. I must say, like, I didn't know it in my mind that I was going to go into like the whole startup ecosystem. It was just something that I think it emerged and I was able to kind of like, you know, witness it. Mm. As a because of the fact that I was in Cape Town while I was studying, and that was where the ecosystem was starting to kind of like you know become more vibrant. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I when I went to UCT, I I was on a scholarship, so I was like, okay, I'm probably gonna go work for the person who's paying my fees. And so it was quite a predictable kind of like roadmap for my my life, at least in my twenties. And yeah, yeah, and then when I when I kind of like collided with the ecosystem, and I saw how vibrant it was, and that there were like a whole bunch of other people who. We're building cool stuff. You know, they were trying it out. Stuff was failing. Stuff was working. Stuff was was getting funding. It started to look a lot more viable, you know. But I must say, it wasn't kind of like a, oh, there's this awesome ecosystem. Let me try something. It was also a, like, it was actually more so the fact that I actually witnessed the problem that I then tried to solve. Mm. So it wasn't like, oh, this sexy ecosystem. Let's try and build something. So you weren't like drawn into it by the hype or the no, media no, no, around no, no. startups. It was no. more so just like, wait, there are ways to solve yeah, problems yeah. through technology. Definitely, definitely. So it was definitely a, a problem. First, how do we try and solve this leveraging off of what we've learned so far in this degree and what I, I kind of know about the people that I'm trying to solve this problem for. And then the, the ecosystem kind of just came around that and got excited about the fact that, you know, my team was black or black. 
and working on a hardware solution, which is known to be the hardest type of thing to, to, to do. Maybe we can yeah. go into that. Sure, sure. Yeah. The company that I founded is called Jonga. Mm. And I founded this while I was in the second year of my degree. So there was this like varsity competition called UCT Upstarts. And it was like the vice chancellor's challenge to the student body to kind of reimagine a new Africa. So very broad scope. You just had to kind of come up with an idea that would somehow reimagine Africa. We had some idea that, so if my, my, my partner, my co-founder was actually in this thing and I wasn't, but he kind of pulled me into it because him and I had a good kind of like relationship and we'd always ideate in my room. And he was like, dude, you need to join this thing. So we joined, we, we became a team. We had some idea that we were floating once again, a solar idea. Oh man. Look, you were ahead of your time. Yeah. Because yeah. look what's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think Solar is having a yeah, moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we caught that in like 20, what, 2014, 2015. But we decided not to go for that, right? So we, we had this idea. And then I went home to visit my aunt. And she, she stays in Whitbank. Yeah. So I went there. I accompanied my cousin to go visit her. Very first evening that we arrived, guys broke into her place while we were asleep. Stole like everything. Woke up in the morning. Obviously, you realize everything is gone. Mm. Laptop, phone, all her stuff. Yeah, it's just very traumatic experience for everyone. But I think the, the one thing, there was a couple of things that stuck out for me about that incident. First of all, you know, we tried to reach out to the police. Got no, no help whatsoever. Guys came hours later. Mm. At that point, you know, there's no hope really that you're going to retrieve the stuff. Also, there were like footprints all over the community, which, you know, kind of alluded to the fact that more than one house was was affected. There was just a whole lot of things that went that went wrong that evening. And I just kept thinking about like the fact that, okay, I'm I'm leaving, but my aunt is actually gonna stay behind. And she's vulnerable and she's she lives in this home by herself. And I just started to think about like, you know, there's probably way more people than her who are in the exact same circumstance. They are extremely vulnerable and they can't rely on the police. Mm. You know, and you know, the townships are, are known to be this space where everyone knows everyone else. There's a sense of like connectedness. But like, where was that in that moment? And that's when I started to really think about the fact that like, we're not actually leveraging off of the social connectedness that exists in the township to, 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 to actually protect ourselves. Mm. And I started ideating around a concept of an alarm that would somehow connect you to the people who matter, who, you know, care, who care the most about during your time of need. Mm. And that's kind of where the idea came from, was that this concept of an alarm that networks you with your family and your friends and so forth. And yeah, I just started to develop from there. So it wasn't like, okay, we're going to do this as a business. It was just like continuing to follow the thread until it got to the point where we were like winning startup competitions. Mm. We were on the media, you know, there was quite a lot of noise around us. And that's when we actually decided like, okay, this actually seems quite viable yeah. to the extent that we could actually even turn down our, our jobs that were waiting for us at the end of our degree. So. We were those rogue students that were just out here yeah, attending meetings in Stellenbosch, going to That's townships insane. all over the country, mm. <laughs> you know, when we probably should have just been studying. But like, yeah, I mean, that's, that was our story. So we were building this business while we were doing our degree. Yeah. And, you know, you don't often see a lot of South African startups do mm. hardware. Yeah. What was that journey like, right? I mean, it's very different from, say, you know, a startup in... Mm know china or has like a lot more access where you know you know yeah. this is the world's factory if i wanted to create an alarm that could you know sound and like alert people that would be an easy you know way to do it i actually saw this insane documentary by wired magazine called shenzhen yeah and it's like the silicon valley of hardware mm -hmm. 
And it just showed how much easier it is to just, you know, if you have an idea for a piece of hardware or technology that can integrate with a phone in some way, mm. would be so easy to be able to just like create those things and ideate yeah. around them and just like, get them into the market as quickly as possible. Yeah. What was that journey like here? Oh man. <laughs> Yo, it was, it was, it was, it was hectic. I think that's the word that I can properly sum it up. I think the really, the, the thing that helped us a lot was the fact that we were, we were very, what's the word? Is it ignorant mm. or naive? Our naivety Naive. served, served us greatly. Like, because you don't know what you don't we know. We didn't know what we didn't know, you know? Mm. And it, it, it actually served us well because one, we, we weren't aware of all the barriers that were, we were going to face. Mm. And we would have never tried it if we were, you know, acutely aware of every challenge we were going to face. But two as well, we, were not, we, we didn't have any experience from like the security industry. And what that meant was that we actually had to spend more time with people on the ground which I think is something that a lot of, you know, product makers or builders don't actually do. Mm. You know, they kind of ideate from some sort of some far removed place, build the solution that, you know, ultimately isn't contextually relevant. And that's what we found. Before starting to build the product, we, we, we went out and did some research to try and find something that was actually on the shelves that could work for this particular market. Mm. And we couldn't find anything. Everything that was there was either a Wi-Fi solution. And at that time, Wi-Fi was like non-existent in townships. Or it was like a solution that was like wired, but extremely expensive and built on technology that was like for, like for like 50 years ago. So it hadn't actually, the space hadn't moved forward in so long and the existing security companies were so comfortable. And yeah, I think we just kind of challenged everything. So we went in with the mindset that, well, we're starting with the blank canvas. Let's speak to people. Let's understand what do they have in their homes? What do they have in their pockets? How, how can we build something that's specifically tailored to how they live their lives and, and what they have and what they don't have? And in the process of that, we actually ended up building something that was quite unique and innovative and actually like a first around the world. And we know this because we've had like people from Colombia reaching out to us, people from New, Ze New Zealand. And they're like, you know, we've never seen anything that has this combination of features and benefits that your product has. And can you just go through it? Yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure. I probably even have one in my bag. I keep on with me Please everywhere it I go. Yeah. <laughs> so what I have over here is a wireless battery yep. powered alarm system. Yeah. So looks unlike any alarm system as I'm sure you've ever seen. Yeah. And there's some pretty unique things about it, right? And I'll walk you through some mm -hmm. of our thinking around the design decisions. So the first thing we noticed when we were spending time in people's homes was that people didn't always have a stable supply of electricity. And because of that, we realized, okay, whatever we build, it has to be able to work for prolonged periods of time without like a, an active kind of connection to the, the mains. So we decided to make it battery powered. And if you can see on the, on the side here, mm. the micro USB charger. So yeah. that insight came from actually seeing that people mainly had basic like entry-level Android phones. So whatever it is that you're going to use to charge, it has to, you know, be something that they have already have access to. Then it also has a siren built into it. Mm. So it's uncommon to find like alarms where you have both the sensor, the siren in the same unit. Usually you have like multiple pieces, right? That's kind of like wired mm. all together. So we, we, we wanted to kind of disrupt that because we realized that that process of installing like a multi-part alarm system is very invasive in your home. Mm. One, it requires somebody who has to come in, see, and then they'll see everything, see where everything is. And that obviously presents a risk to you because 
as we know, there's all these syndicates out there where installers are actually like colluding with these guys and, mm. and so forth, right? So we wanted to be to make it so simple to install that you could literally just place it on on a surface and you know turn it on and it's pretty much installed. Yeah. And it's monitoring that space. And then it has a siren. So I'll explain to you how it works in a sec. So that was that piece around. We don't want it to be like this thing where you have to invest so much to kind of get cabling installed and, and so forth. That actually is the reason why installations for alarms are so expensive. It's because you're paying for that person, that skilled technician to come in and stuff. So we really want And to, you still have the hardware that you have to pay for and exactly, the wiring and yeah. Exactly. So you have to pay for all of that. So we're also trying to figure out how do we cut down the costs, right? So another thing is that this device doesn't use Wi-Fi. It doesn't even use like your cellular networks. So you don't have to actually have data to communicate to the device or for mm. the device to communicate. It uses like a dedicated IoT network called Sigfox. Mm. Now, Sigfox is a very interesting technology because what it enables, well, for us at least, is a battery life of eight months on a single charge. That's insane. Yeah. So we, this is the thing that like always like takes people over like is that you just need to charge it once a year. And then it works perfectly fine. And what that opens up is like opportunities to take this to the rules where, you know, you might not have that electricity and mm. so forth. And now you can actually have an alarm system that works. So this device connects to an app that you download on your phone. Mm. A basic app. You can have it on any Android phone. You could also have it on your iPhone as well. Mm. So on the device, when you are creating your profile, what it does is that it prompts you to also put down the contacts of your neighbors. So we call that like your emergency contact list. So these are people who are going to receive notifications when you say that there's an emergency. Mm. They are all gonna get SMSs that say, "Hey, Spanman is is having like you know issues. Let's go and help." So that's trying to play on the whole thing of organizing communities mm. to provide a protective force. Mm. So let me walk you through the end to end kind of like experience. Mm. So download the app create your profile, add your neighbors, and then you're then able to like control the device. So you'll have to establish a connection with the device via Bluetooth. Mm. All right. So that means that while you're within range, you can arm it or you can disarm it. And then once you leave the place, it gives you 30 seconds to leave. And then it starts like looking out for motion. And then if it detects anything, it sends you a notification to your phone and it says, hey, we've detected this activity in your home. Mm-hmm. or your small business, wherever you've installed it. What do you want to do about it? Is it an emergency or a false alarm? And if it's an emergency, you hit emergency. And how that works is that, you know, if you're not at home, you're not expecting one to, anyone to be in your home. Yeah. If there's motion, then you'll say, okay, that's an emergency. What happens then is that the siren goes off. So it's, that's to scare the guy off or mm-hmm. the, whoever it is, to scare them off. But then we send you the notification. And then we also send out SMSs automatically to all of those people on your contact. Yeah. More recently, what we've done is that we've also integrated with the police. So, and this is through like a third party, mmm. right? So what that means is that we're also then able to notify the police that, this that hey, is this is happening mm. and here's the address that it's happening at. And then they will contact you and then they will actually like dispatch someone to you. And that actually happens. And it's so incredible. Like through this connection that we've established with them, we've managed to get way quicker responses than if you just dialed 10 triple one. So that's also really useful. And, you know, they, at the end of the day, sometimes they don't come. Sometimes they come. They're the police at the end of the day. Yeah. But the, the really good thing is the fact that you now have that on record that like, okay, the police came, they took the statement and so forth. And you can track all of that on the app, yeah. which is really, really dope. So, yeah, that's pretty much the solution. Very community-based, and that's what differentiates it. But also the form factor of the hardware itself is unique because 
if if you ever moved, you didn't have you don't have to like rip out all these wires and so forth. You just take it with you. Yeah. If you want to go to your holiday home, you take it with you. And those are some of the like unintended benefits that oh yeah because you know, like yeah. you think about you know and maybe this is a weird use mm. case but like say i took this with me to an airbnb where mm. i didn't necessarily feel like i was the only person that had access because yeah. there has been like very you know disturbing you know yeah. stories where someone is like mm. i was at an airbnb and then someone's you know broke in or something happened whereas when you have this it's like exactly. such an interesting just like solution to be able to still try and protect yourself in some mm. way yeah definitely and even if you don't connect it to your neighbors or anyone you know mm. you know you know when someone's in your place and yeah and i guess the best part is that it's so affordable right like if you if you were to let's say call ADT from soweto right now and said hey i want an alarm system you're probably going to pay four thousand rand up front mm. just to kind of have the hardware have it installed and then you're probably going to have to pay 700 rand a month for monitoring with the hopes that no one breaks in. That'll probably only happen maybe like once or twice every like five years. Mm. So imagine you're paying 700 rand times 60 months. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Whereas with our product, you know, it's this, this version of the product we sold for 500 rand and you paid 80 rand a month. Yeah. Do you look at it as being like, how important is opening up access to a lot more people having something like this that really can, you know, be a just a protective layer, right? Mm -hmm. There's no 100% proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in the country that we're in and the situations that we're in. Definitely. There's no 100%, you know, safe completely, but like this just provides that yeah. extra layer of like, okay, I have some. Yeah, yeah. How important was it for you guys to make sure that it was accessible, but also just like something that anyone can access? Yeah. yeah. That, that was literally our North Star. Mm. Our mission was that we wanted to build the world's most accessible alarm system. Something that was so simple, even my own aunt or my grandmother could use. So that's always what kept us, you know, focused. Mm. Even it informed the product decisions we made so that it actually ended up like this. Mm. It was that mission of it has to be extremely, extremely accessible. It should work on anyone's phone. You know, you don't need to have Wi-Fi. You don't even need to have like electricity half the time mm -hmm. in order for it to work. So it was extremely, extremely important for us to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So how have you sort of grown, you know, in terms of like the personal and professional skills yeah. through developing the product? And like what challenges have you had, you know, from a hardware, but mm. also from a software perspective to try and make this something that other people can rely on? Because yeah. this does become yeah. an important part of other people's lives. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the first thing is that I've, I've, I've grown so much. Man, this, this project has tremendously changed my life. One, obviously, it's introduced me into an, an ecosystem that I didn't know of, like existed previously. But I think just in terms of the skills, like as a founder, you know, when you start something, you have an idea, but you don't necessarily have all the skills that you need to make that happen. So I think the biggest learning has been like actually building a structure that can actually deliver on that vision. You know, it's always such an amazing feeling and it hits me randomly where I'm holding it and I'm like, damn, you were once in my mind, mm. you know, and there's. A lot of people, a lot of skills, a lot of, you know, partnerships that go into delivering something like this that can actually notify you about something that's happening in the real world in your, in your space while you're not there and can dispatch someone who's in a police station somewhere else and mm -hmm. they know exactly where to go. So, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. And I think that's been the biggest learning for me is how to organize resources and people around a story and around a dream. Mm. to make it happen. And I think that's something that you can only actually get when you try and create something. 
That's true. Yeah, you can never get it when you're like kind of employed into it. It has to be something like a journey where, you know, you you own all the problems and you you figure it out like slowly over time. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you compare the experience of being someone that works in a startup versus someone that is building a startup? Yeah. And how do those things differ in the things that you're learning about building things in general? Sure. I think it depends on how early you join the team. Yeah. If you join the team and the product's already like mature or, you know, the the, the team already has product market fit, you've missed out on probably 80% of the learning. Mm. And you, you're now in the phase where, you know, the benefit isn't any much higher than if you went to work for a more established company. A corporate. Yeah. Yeah. A corporate, for instance. Right. So. I think if you want to get that kind of learning and that experience that I've just described, you're going to really like, you're going to need to join the team when it's still quite early on, when, you know, the product roadmap is not defined uh, and you actually don't know anything. The only thing that you know are a bunch of assumptions that need to be validated by going out into the real world. So I think, yeah, that's, 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 it's it's a matter of when do you actually join the team that's solving the problem. Hmm. And as a founder? So repeat the question so that I, I get it. It's all good. I think I lost it as well. <laughs> no worries. It's fine. Don't worry. I have an amazing AI yeah? enabled editor that like cuts out <laughs> all the stuff. Don't worry. Love it. Love it. Okay. You know, there's sort of the hardware and yeah. software aspects and just like how important it is to try and coordinate resources mm-hmm. to building a product. For me, that has always been like the biggest challenge a lot of entrepreneurs speak about yeah. is just like that part of organizing people and resources mm. toward the common goal, like yeah. focus. Is there, you know, from a product manager's perspective or just like from a founder's perspective, a golden thread that says, this is how you should build a team. This is how you coordinate people a lot better and try and like really get people to understand the vision and why the work that they're doing is so important to contribute to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an excellent question. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, as a, as a founder... Your, your number one job is to be able to storytell. A lot of people think that that skill is only useful when you're selling to a customer. But truth be told, it's useful way before then. Like mm. you need to tell a story to your co-founders. You need to convince them to come along on this journey with you. And you also need to do the same for investors. So, you know, in order for you to actually build anything, you're going to have to constantly tell your story to people. And it's going to have to resonate with them. And they're going to have to say, okay, cool. I, I'm going to hitch my wagon onto this, you know, I'm going to follow the story. So I think that the first thing is that like, if you, if you are not a storyteller as a founder, you're going to have to partner up with somebody who is, because it's probably the the single most important thing. You know, I've told this story, I think maybe more than 10,000 times now, Mm. and you can't get tired of it. You know, you have to keep telling the story, but in terms of like a golden thread that can help you bring something like this to life, I would say the first thing is identifying a problem. A real problem. And what I mean by a real problem is that it can't just be something that is, it can't just be like, okay, I've got this idea and now I'm going to find a problem for it. No, it has to be like, I actually experienced this problem. I've went, I've gone out and spoken to real people and they've also validated for me that this is a, indeed a problem in their lives. Mm-hmm. And also it's worth mentioning that not, not all problems are equal, right? Like some problems are more severe. Some problems are more frequent. So those are the kind of things that you have to validate. Like, okay, is it a problem? How big of a problem is it? How often do people experience this problem? What are they currently trying to do to solve this problem? Mm. And if they're not doing anything current to solve the problem, I'm sorry to say, but it's not really a problem. Yeah. And that's the part that people often miss is that like, they'll speak to people, they'll establish that it's a big problem. 
it's a frequent problem, but the person's doing nothing about it. Well, then maybe it's not as big as the person is saying. Yeah. So you kind of have to read between the lines as well. So you like, I think the problems I like are the ones where the person is doing something that's like really complex and really like non, non-intuitive and, and they, they really hate that process. But or even it's not accessible. Well, it's not accessible, mm. right? But they have no other choice. That's when you know, okay, you, you have a, a, a real problem that's been validated. And then once you start off, once you've gotten that part right, you now have to kind of enter into a very kind of consultative, very kind of on the ground process of working alongside those people to come up with the right solution. And I think this is where a lot of people often go off and they come up with their own ideas and then they go out and try and get investment for it and then build it only to find that the very same people they were building it for, you know, they, they don't, they don't accept it. They're not part and parcel of the solution. So mm. I always like to spend as much time as possible with those same people. So after I've established that it's a problem with you, like, let's figure it out. Like, how are we going to solve this thing? You know, does this work? You know, you, you try and, and, and rapidly prototype the solution. And the idea there is not to build this really beautiful thing that looks like the end product. You just want to, you know, give them something in their hand that kind of like looks and feels something similar to the experience they'd have using the real product. And then, you know, you work with them to kind of get to a point where they're like, yeah, you know, if it actually had these and these characteristics and these benefits, that's something that I'd consider using. Mm-hmm. Then you're on the right track. And now it's, it's a much better story for you to tell to attract other people. And I always tell people like, sure, you've got an amazing idea, but I can't necessarily make a huge life decision on the back of an idea. But mm-hmm. if you come to me and tell me, I've spoken to like 50 people, 30 of them say they have this problem and they're trying to do this about it. And I've gone through a process of working through the solution with them. And they said that if the solution had one, two, and three elements, then they would actually try it out. Mm. It's a different story. Like it's, think about what, what sounds more compelling. The person who's like, I've got this awesome idea or the person who's like, hey, I've spoken to real people and I validated. No, absolutely the one that's validated. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a a no-brainer, Yeah, it's an easy like It's a a no-brainer. And it's the same that applies with like investors. Like by the time you're speaking to an investor, you need to be able to tell them something compelling. Mm. You know, it's not just about ideas. Investors are actually notoriously bad at judging the success of a startup based on the idea. So you want to tell them a story that's like, hey, look, I've spoken to people. Mm. You know, this is what they're saying. This is what I've learned. This is what I've mocked up. Give me capital so that I can do this. If I could do this with no capital, imagine what I can do with capital. Yeah. You know? And that becomes like a more interesting thing is like, you know, what you said about investors not necessarily being the best people to judge startups off of ideas. What would you say has been the common thread amongst investors around what they do back, right? Like you've heard Mm. rhetoric around, you know, now it's a lot stricter where it's like, okay, let's do, you know, very serious due diligence on startups, validating like, do the customers even exist, which just like recently (laughs) happened. Forgot what the name of, of the startup was. Like this lady basically sold it to Bloomberg and they bought it. And then a year later, they figured out, oh, wait, there were all, the th- users all were those fake. users were fake, right? Yeah. Like yeah. something like that versus, say, the sort of conversations that you hear around Silicon Valley guys saying, oh, no, I back the founder. And like, mm. because the founder had so much conviction in the success of the thing that they yeah. were building, yeah. I believe that this will turn into something, even if it's not today or tomorrow. Mm-mm. But you can back that this person will create something of value in the future somehow. Yeah, yeah. So what has been something that you feel like South African or African investors sure. are really looking at much more, you know, consciously? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, 
investors are not wrong when they say that the, the founder is actually the most important thing. A strong founding team might not have the right idea at that moment when they pitch to them, but so long as they're playing in an interesting enough space and they are motivated enough, some in some way related or connected to the problem they're trying to solve, then, you know, then more often than not, they'll, they'll be willing to take that bet on those founders. But the founder is, is extremely, extremely like important. Right. But then the other one is the, is the, is the market itself that you're trying to solve, right? That you're trying to solve like the problem in. A lot of the times what they want to see is that you're in a market that's growing really quickly. Mm -hmm. If your market is big, but there are signs that it's actually kind of like shrinking over time, that's a risky space. Mm -hmm. In the back of their minds, they're always thinking about risk. And I think this is one thing that like entrepreneurs need to understand. We think, we think that they're supposed to care about our idea as much as we do. But no, you're the one who's responsible for caring about that stuff. They're, they're thinking about risk. Like, okay, I don't know these founders. They've never built something before that I've heard of. They're kind of like doing this checkbox in their mind, right? Yeah. And you have to kind of allay some of those concerns that they have through, through you know, the, 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 the story you're telling them. Mm. So if you can tell a story that solves yourself, so you've got like, you can somehow convince them that there's like a founder, founder problem fit. Mm. You're the right person to solve this problem. Yeah. And then you can also convince them that it's actually a fast growing market. That's a really big thing for them. They're always looking out for that. And I think probably the other one is product market fit. A lot of them want to see like early signs of product market fit. Mm. And you don't necessarily need a completed product to actually validate that. But if you can show them that, hey, look, I'm working on something that has potential to solve this problem in this fast growing market. And because of the experience, the networks I have, my partners, and so forth, we actually have what it takes to deliver on that, mm. then that's usually a very compelling story that investors will buy. Yeah. Yeah. It's super, super important. And just to kind of expand a little bit more on that founder problem fit, this one's quite important. Obviously, if you're doing like some sort of a really technical high tech kind of solution, mm. you know, your background matters in that, in, in that, in that instance, if you don't have any engineering capability within the founding team, it's a huge risk. Mm. You know, you guys might have an amazing problem. And you've got this amazing insight, but you might not be able to actually deliver on it. Yeah. And it ultimately does come down to execution. So it is really important that, you know, you, you do have the right skills, at least within, if, if you can't have them in your founding team, you at least need to have advisors who have those skills. Yeah. Just collectively as a group, you guys need to be able to deliver on that amazing idea that you have. That's a really huge thing that investors look out for. So, I mean... When you look at like what you've built with Jonga, right? Yeah. I think, you know, community is such a big part of that. You know, these alerts are not just going to general protection services or anything like that. Obviously, there is that integration, but it really leans itself mm -hmm. in community. Yeah. The other thing that you like have sort of built is very much fo focused on community. And like, we've been speaking about this ecosystem, the yeah. ecosystem, <laughs> the ecosystem. This buzzword. Let's start with that, right? I think like... A lot of people, when they talk about the ecosystem, yeah. don't necessarily, you know, go into what does that actually mean? Yeah. When you say you collided with the ecosystem and this thing of, you know, multiple communities that are all trying to build things, what are you talking about? Sure, sure. So in 2021, I founded a community mm. called Darkies and Tech, and it's a community of excellent Black founders who are working on scalable solutions to problems. So that's that's part of the criteria is that it has to be scalable tech. It can't just be, I'm a founder working on a traditional business, but I have a website. Mm. That isn't quite what we're looking for. We're looking for people who are building 
scale products. And yeah, you have to be black. Mm. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain why that's super important for me. But it's so interesting. The community is more than just about founders now. It's actually become a mini ecosystem of itself because we also have investors in the, in the community. So we have black VCs, black angel investors in the community. We have developers in the community. We have ecosystem builders as well. And uh, ecosystem builders are pretty much like incubators, accelerators, yep. guys who support these founders to actually build these businesses. And more recently, we've actually opened it up a bit to people in corporate companies, but occupying digital positions, digital kind of tech mm. type positions. And the motivation around that was that we actually thought, you know, we're going to have to learn something from people in those positions because a lot of the times we're trying to make them our clients. Yeah. So having them around the table is super, super helpful so that they can help us, you know, figure out how is corporate thinking about these things. Mm. So now it's become quite diverse, right? And it's become a mini ecosystem. So to get into this term, what is the ecosystem? It's pretty much all, it's a, it's a collection of all the players that enable startups. Mm. You know, everyone plays a role, the founder, the investor, the incubator, the ecosystem builder, mm. right? So when I speak about the ecosystem that I collided with, it was kind of the broader South African tech ecosystem that pretty much found its origins within the Cape Town kind of space yeah. you know, between Woodstock and stuff like that. And then the launch lab in Stellenbosch and so forth. So one of my frustrations about the ecosystem was the fact that it, one, is very white. A lot mm. of the people that you'd see at these events are like white. And two, it kind of, it celebrates black founders, but not in a way that is actually helpful to mm. their businesses. So there's a lot of like cosmetic assistance and it's not really, you know, yeah, but when it comes down to it, a lot of the resources, a lot of the deals are actually being passed across to white founders, but black people are just invited to come to events and speak and share their story, you know? Yeah. So I, I felt like that was such a, a problem. And the fact that like, you know, often these spaces where real deals are happening, where real knowledge is being transferred, there are not a lot of black founders. In fact, oftentimes we were the only ones. And as I, you know, continued the journey of building Jonga, I started to come a across a lot of other black founders who had similar stories where they felt alone, you know, in the middle of the ecosystem because, you know, there were so many white people, you know, and they were the ones who were, you know, raising funding and so forth. And then, you know, as a black founder, you had to jump through twice as many hoops. You know, you had to show so much more invasive data to mm. people just to convince them that your stuff works. And it was so interesting because a lot of the times the black founders I meet are often working on better products. Mm. Uh, so we all face this challenge. And I just thought, well, okay, from a, a moment of frustration, I'm going to connect all the black founders I know right now and put them all on a WhatsApp. Like it's just an, a very impulsive moment. I'm, I'm really annoyed at this problem. I'm going to connect them all and we're going to do what white people, for lack of a better word, share knowledge with one another. We're going to share insights, opportunities. It's, we're doing that thing. So first day of this group's inception, put 10 people on a WhatsApp group. Mm. And I told them, guys, I want you to invite brilliant founders or investors that you know, black people, to the community. And I put down a set of criteria and I shared that with them. And slowly but surely, everyone started inviting the two or three founders that they knew. And we started to grow in that way. And mm -hmm. yeah, and then at some point it just became this vibrant community where, you know, people would share articles with one another. We could ask questions. We could share our success stories with one another and just be celebrated. And an interesting thing started to happen as well, where people would even offer to help one another for free in certain instances. And if somebody was launching something, we would then try and support them. 
and try it out, give them feedback. So it really just did become this really vibrant community. And yeah, I'm still running that today. Mm. And now it's grown to around 260 odd members. And we've moved from like WhatsApp as a sole base to like Slack. Mm. So we're on Slack. We've got a whole bunch of channels there, but we still have the WhatsApp group as well because, you know, some people want that kind of real time and, you know, WhatsApp is super convenient for that. Yeah. But yeah. How important is, you know, having this community within the ecosystem that is very much focusing on founders that might not have the best experience, right? Because for me, it's like, it becomes so obvious that, you know, there's more than one ecosystem in South Africa. Yeah. And if you speak to, you know, I have a couple of friends who are, you know, founders or work in startups from across the continent. And the first thing they say about South Africa is like, yo. You guys have so many ecosystems. It's mm-hmm. not just like it's one, one thing coherent, that's yeah. serving everyone. Yeah, It's multiple ecosystems with all different priorities. They all have different biases. All of them have like different ways of working and thinking about, you know, how to build or support people that are building things. And that sort of separation of ecosystems also means that some people are going to have a much bigger advantage of like, or, or, or a better experience raising money, for example, mm-hmm. which is like the most obvious one. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of data about this Yeah, that shows the bias, you know, towards yeah. founders that are not black. How important is this community within the ecosystem that does have a focus on, you know, founders that might not have that leg up yeah. that others do? Yeah, I think it's it's critical, man. And I think one of the things that, you know, excites me the most about Docky's Intake is that we have founders of all sizes. We have, this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm not prescriptive about. We have guys who are at the very early stage of their journey in the same community with, you know, the likes of Malvin, you mm. know, and it's so incredible to me how responsive the more established. Someone else might not know who Malvin is. Oh, okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mal- Malvin, sorry for name dropping you. But yeah, so we, we Malvin is, is the founder of South Africa's first unicorn, mm. which is a billion dollar business. Which one is that? Go One. Oh, yes. Go One. Go One. Yeah, yes. yeah. So Malvin is the founder of Go One. He's mm. also an investor in Jonga. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's just been so incredible how, you know, the 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 scale-ups or late-stage guys are, you know, providing assistance and, and giving advice to the, some of the early-stage guys all within the same community. And I think for me, that was really important because I realized that a lot of the early-stage Black founders, you know, we, we don't have, you know, fathers or older brothers that have built companies before and things like that, right? So, should I keep going? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. So we don't we don't have we don't have the, the support system that our white counterparts have. We don't have the rich uncle who, you know, is a farmer and can just give you your seed fund, right? Yeah. But within that community, you know, there they are those people. There are those people who are further along, and they actually want to write checks and back earlier stage companies. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's one of the pride and joys of of of, of Dockies and Tech for me. That's so important. Yeah. Do you think that you know, the broader ecosystem has done enough to, you know, one, recognize the problems that it faces, but more so also address those challenges and have conversations with communities like your yours to say, you know, maybe we do have a bias and we might not be understanding that this is a problem. And maybe that's ignorance. Maybe that's just arrogance, whatever it is. But is there a thing from that, those guys that are going, you know, we actually want to understand what the challenge is here and how we can work with the community to try and address those challenges. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, there's obviously, you can always do more and there's a lot of work to be done. But 
I definitely think that I've seen some positive strides towards, you know, trying to solve this problem, right? Of, I guess, the, the divide within the ecosystem between the white counterparts and, and black founders. Mm. Um, we actually held an event last year, like mid to late last year at some point with Knife Capital. Yeah. And, you know, when they found out that there was a community that exists that has 260 like black founders and the community has collectively raised 6 billion rand, you know, in terms of like the, the amount that the founders have raised collect, they were super excited to have the conversation because, and they shared transparently that like where, from where they're sitting, a lot of the times they feel like, where are these founders? Mm. Right? Like we, we want to back them. We want to find them. We want to back. But, you know, then the founders on the other end are sitting there and they're like, where are these guys willing to write these checks? So this is, this is kind of like disconnect or divide that exists. Mm. But I have seen, I has, I have seen like, you know, an improvement in, in the willingness to kind of step out of, you know, your bubble and, and come and connect mm. and actually, you know, work through the issues, like you say, and, and try and come to, you know, solutions. Not, not too many have reached out, but, Typically, we're at that stage now as a community where, you know, the, the numbers are really good. You know, it's, it's, we, we, we exist in a time where, you know, being a black founder is, is like, how do I put this? Let me say we exist in a time where it's more important than ever to, to support black businesses. Mm. So corporates, VCs in them are all trying to reach out, but they don't know where we're all kind of hiding it. And this community kind of serves as a way to be like, hey, if you can interact with us, you're interacting with so many black founders at the same time. Mm. And I think that's where, you know, the community has been really, really interesting in that its collective power is able to pull anyone. That's been my experience that when I reach out to anyone and I'm like, hey, look, we want to have a chat with you guys. They're usually quite responsive. Yeah. And I think that that wouldn't be the case if it was just one of those startups in isolation trying to reach out to, that's true. to that corporate. Yeah. And it speaks to the power of community, right? Yeah. And can you speak to what the typical Black founders experience would be outside of a community like that? Like sure. in isolation, where you're just a startup. And maybe this is before you've even started your this community. Mm. What was your experience, you know, and how would you compare that to the experience of most founders? So I would say our experience was quite unique in the sense that we didn't battle as much as the typical founder in terms of like the typical black founder in terms of like raising funding. Mm. And there, there are a couple of reasons why that is. First of all, I think we, you know, we were heavily involved in startup competitions. So we were able to raise some of the early funding that we could use to validate the idea without having to give away any equity or speak to investors. The typical story of a, of a black founder is that you, you know, you, you have a product. It works really well, but people don't trust it. Mm. People barely trust you because they don't know you. You didn't come through a trusted network of theirs. And that's a big thing for these, for these networks, angel networks and for the VCs. It's who, who introduced you to us. If mm. it's not someone that we know, someone that we respect, like, chances are we're not going to really look at it. And it's a sad thing, but like, it's, it's just the truth. Like mm. very few VCs and investors actually look at like the incoming emails that come from the website. Yeah. Like they really look at the person that X, Y, or Z recommends to them. So for us, our very first angel investor was actually my partner's lecturer. So my partner, I don't know what kind of like, you know, got him to research who his lecturer was, you know, discovered that this was an amazing dude with a past life yeah. as an executive, executive coach and all of that. And we reached out to him and turns out he was quite an influential P or he is still is very influential person within 
the, the community of, of like angels and, and investors. And he then was able to then open those doors with all the other people. Yeah. So we were beneficiaries of that system in a sense, but it's not the typical story for other black founders because one, you're not at UCT. Mm-hmm. Chances are maybe you were studying somewhere else and that already has its it's set of disadvantages unfortunately because I mean it's so amazing how many meetings you get into like you, you step in and the, the the first connection is established based on where you went to varsity yeah and how exclusionary is that like if you didn't have the means to go to the right university you're already excluded from those networks right so we had that going for ourselves but a lot of black founders don't and yeah so I think that's the first thing that you're going to struggle to get resources to actually prove that this thing can work Mm. and then when you do prove that it works you'll probably go and upskill yourself you know as we hustle we we grind so you'll go you'll go upskill yourself you'll build it you'll show them that it works and even then they're not going to trust it and it's this is the saddest part for me because it's like well let's at least be merit-based right like that's Mm. you guys preach that message at least follow it but no you still have to jump through more hoops you still have you still have to get more traction to mm. actually prove it. Whereas if you are maybe somebody, a white founder, went to Hilton, you know, went to Michael House, your dad is friends with all the CEOs of the corporates around town. Those are your early customers and they'll sign you off the back of, hey, this is my son, please give him business. Mm. And then you're able to obviously validate because look at the the logos you have on your pitch deck. Yeah. Right? And then it's a lot easier for you because also your dad knows the, you know, the head of some VC. Mm. So you can see how the whole system is kind of orchestrated to really enable them to succeed. Yeah. Whereas as a black founder, you really are hustling at every point of the journey, right? If you don't have the right accent, that's another factor that may, you know, in, impact you. Yeah. So there's a whole myriad of challenges. It's, it's really just, yeah, it's really dark. That's why. It's really dark. That's why, that's why, that's why we <laughs> thought in tech exists. Cause that was just, it was the frustration and also the, that sense that no, we, we, we've been really, really fortunate to mm. have all those things working for us. But that's not the common experience for the founder on the ground. Yeah. And, you know, with the expansion of this community to go, okay, not just founders, but now investors, now VCs, now, you know, people in corporates that might be able to enable these founders in some way. How do you imagine the community evolves? And, you know, as it grows, what challenges have you had? Because there is sort of, you know, a very much like let's avoid the conversation mm. sort of standard, I think, in the ecosystem to say, oh, guys, let's not talk about that mm. thing. That's the thing we don't talk about. Mm. You know, th- there's guests today. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know? And and I've, I've found that in private conversations, everyone acknowledges, yeah. okay, there is a problem yeah. in the ecosystem, yeah. not yeah. having a specific bias towards some founders. But like, in public conversations, like, oh, no, guys, there's guests. Mm. Uh, we can't really, you know, and it's a very, like, I, I'd say African problem where yeah. it's like, no, we can't have certain discussions yeah, or yeah, conversations yeah. very openly. Exactly. So what are the challenges that you guys have faced? And then on the back of that is like, how do you imagine the community starts to evolve and grow? Sure. So I think before I get into the challenges, I think I'll, I'll speak about the opportunities that I see. Mm. I think one, I've obviously seen the fact that 260 black people who are crushing it is a really strong and attractive proposition, right? So for me, what that means is that we need to leverage that Mm. to get meetings with the right people and start to have those conversations. And I think that's, that's really what's on the roadmap for me is how can we use it as a vehicle to actually get the right people in the room, people Mm. who might not accept the invitation if it was just Nzako in the capacity of Jonga. 
but like, no, this is the community of some of the most influential black founders in the country. Mm. You have to take that meeting. Right. So I think it's one starting to use it to change the, 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 the landscape around policies for startups so that it's a lot more enabling. Mm. And it isn't just this thing where everyone talks about supporting startups, but no one does it. Yeah. That's an issue of policy. So we have to actually really start to remove some of the barriers that stand in the way of us building businesses. So that's, that's probably the biggest project I think is that how do we collect ourselves and how do we present ourselves in such a way where people can take us serious and we can have those really hard discussions. Some of the challenges that exist is that, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to decide what should we do next? Cause there's so much that can be done. Right. Mm. And it's ultimately a thing of, okay, well, how do we prioritize our, our energy and also be cognizant of the fact that primarily we're entrepreneurs, we're trying to build our businesses. Yeah. You know, we're part of this community to the end that it helps us build our businesses. Yeah. So I think that that's the challenge. It's about like, okay, how do we have those conversations while at the same time, not neglect the very reason why we're in the community to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always, my, my biggest responsibility to the community is to always try and connect the dots yeah. for the community. If I hear that, okay, there's certain conversations happening around fundraising. A lot of people are asking questions. I need to now go out there and figure out who do I need to bring into our space? Maybe that person's already in the space. Mm. Oftentimes they are. Who do I pick from the community who can now speak to us on this matter and help clear a lot of the, 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 the areas for us? Yeah. And we call those knowledge transfer sessions and they happen. And sometimes we'll, we'll need to go outside for the skill, for the knowledge of the inside. Yeah. And there's just so many opportunities. I think there's, there's, a, there's a lot more opportunity than there are challenges. Mm. The challenges are maybe that people are still a bit afraid to interact with us because they don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to say the wrong things. But I mean, we, we're, we're reasonable people. We're like, we're willing to have the conversation with people who are willing to have the conversation. That's and true. we'll have the grace, like where, you know, we, we, we respect the fact that you're willing to get in the ring and get it wrong. Mm. you know, around the group of people who can actually correct you and who can help and contribute their, their voice to the conversation. How do you hope, you know, South Africa's ecosystem in its, you know, different faces and, mm. you know, evolves and better serves Black founders? Yeah, I think, you know, the, at, the, at the end of the day, Black founders are inundated with support, but they're not really given deals. You know, I find Black founders are not even really asking for investment anymore. They're just asking for business. Like, Give us mm. an opportunity to actually show you that we can crush this, you know? And we have to overcome a trust deficit in order to actually get that opportunity. So I think an evolution in the ecosystem for me is instead of bringing all of this support, you know, training, like try and speak to a black founder. They've probably been on three or four programs or three or four corporates. They're on, they've done every ESD program there is, but they still want just business. Mm. So I think you know, opportunities can arise where black founders can actually, you know, get a chance to provide their product or services. That That's really all we're asking for. That's powerful, though. <laughs> Access to market, man. Access to market. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so honored to be here, really. I appreciate it so much. Yeah. access previous episodes of this podcast but also again access to other shows on our network please visit lucha.com